What's up, guys? My name is Owen. I'm Sam, and this is Table Talks. On today's episode, we want to welcome our beloved friend, Leo. Leo, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Leo, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, my name's uh, Leopoldo Ayerruere. I was born in Caracas, Venezuela. Fun fact, in a hospital with the same first and last name as myself. Uh, then I moved to uh, the United States at three months old. I was that crying baby on the plane. My apologies. And um, moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where I spent the first half of my life. Made the unfortunate decision of becoming a Cleveland sports fan. So, But we're turning things around, so ha- happy about that. Uh, going into seventh grade, moved into a... Uh, Moved to New Jersey, about 30 minutes outside of uh, New York City. Uh, And I had a really fortunate childhood in terms of uh, diversity. I remember in um, my friend group growing up in Cleveland, there were uh, like two Hispanic guys, uh, a black guy, a Jewish guy, and then the rest of uh, the people were Asian and just from a very uh, young age, I was able to get like different points of views and uh, different cultures and how they behaved, how they interacted, how they ate dinner, because that can be different from culture to culture. And even when I moved to New Jersey, I I don't know if that's coincidence or if that's just um, what I something I subconsciously seek out. But uh, it was the same situation in New Jersey. There were uh, it, I just happened to find a really good, uh, diverse friend group, uh, that I still talk to to this day, which I'm pretty fortunate about. Um, I'm also, uh, grew up in very, uh, good situations, which has allowed me to get a good grasp of, uh, privilege, uh, because even though my, uh, parents immigrated to the United States in the nineties and, uh, essentially sorry with nothing they were able to build up enough uh, wealth that I never had to personally struggle uh, which I'm like very grateful of and uh, I've in the recent years have come to appreciate uh, exactly how privileged privileged I was and in doing so uh, has molded exactly how what I want to do in life because I want other people to be just as privileged and have the same opportunities that I did growing up. Um, Also, my uh, sister, uh, she was born with uh, disabilities. She has a, the way that my parents explained it to me was essentially a combination of cerebral palsy and uh, autism. So she's nonverbal and, but still can communicate some things through signals uh, facial expressions, um, so on and so forth. But, um, having her as, uh, just constantly by my side has, uh, also been something that I care about significantly, significantly in my life. So, um, and just her being there and growing up close with my parents has given me a good grasp of, uh, like the importance of family and how you need to constantly, be with people you love okay thanks for sharing that um do you want to tell us a little bit more about how kind of that background and everything brought you to like purdue and and what you're doing today and kind of the experiences you're going through right now yeah 
so uh, forgot to mention, currently uh, a senior in industrial engineering at Purdue. Um, and so originally I, well, uh, I wanted to come to Purdue for aeronautical engineering. Uh, I uh, got into direct admit for the aero program at Illinois, but uh, actually decided to come to Purdue uh, because, I don't know, I felt that the vibe at Purdue was better. So um, I don't know if I was also uh, pushed to go into engineering. Uh, I didn't really feel that stressed about it uh, in high school. Uh, but again, maybe subconsciously, like my father was it, or is a current industrial engineer. My uh, uncle is a petroleum engineer. My grandfather was an industrial engineer. My great grandfather was a geologist. So there were uh, people just all around me that grew up in STEM. So uh, probably, again, subconsciously, I realized that uh, I probably should go into uh, some sort of STEM field. And uh, that's how I ended up with uh, Purdue. And um, from the beginning, I really wanted to focus on uh, renewable energy. So when I had the idea of going into aer uh, aeronautical engineering, I really wanted to focus on engine design and how to make planes greener. Like that was my idealistic version of uh, what I wanted to do when I grew up from or in high school. And slowly but surely, whether or not I was pushed or uh, forced into uh, certain aspects, uh, I got into uh, industrial engineering. Um, and honestly, that was the best uh, thing that happened to me in terms of my professional career so far because uh, the restrictiveness, the restrictiveness of um, uh, aeronautical engineering is uh, like, you can't go very far in in uh, aeronautical engineering. You don't have a lot of options. And um, one of the big things that I came to realize is that if you're working in aeronautical engineering, you basically work with civilian aircraft or you indirectly make things to kill people. And that is just something I did not want to sign up for. I it like current, even currently I, I hold that dear to my heart that I don't want to contribute to somehow harming others. So whether that be building uh, F-35 bombers, like that does not uh, appeal to me whatsoever. Uh, building even, or now that I'm an industrial engineer, I don't want to optimize the production of ExxonMobil to harm the environment even uh, slightly. So that's what led me to currently strive for, uh, when I graduate, two main industries, uh, the renewable energy field, so working more specifically with uh, wind turbines, solar cells, etc., and the healthcare industry. So trying to either, say, optimize a uh, hospital uh, to best ensure that doctors and nurses are in the best place that they can be at the current time, or uh, go into healthcare manufacturing to try and make sure that uh, what I'm putting my uh, efforts into benefit people somehow. Yeah, sweet. Well, th thanks for sharing that for us. Um... I think on that note, Sam and I have some questions that we want to dive into. So Sam, you want to take it away in our main segment here? You spoke a lot about diversity in your introduction. And since you've been at Purdue, 
what opportunities have you taken either consciously or subconsciously to kind of seek out diversity? So it's definitely difficult because uh, I don't know if this is common fact or a uh, common idea, but Purdue is very white, just quite white. And um, I remembered standing in uh, the orientation that Purdue has um, and uh, one of the statistics they threw up was that Purdue Hispa- Hispanic population was under like 3%, which is insane to me. Um, so from there on out, it was my immediate um, like opportunities to make friends. Uh, they were all white. Um, so they, I had to like consciously try and seek out other people that either looked like me or spoke Spanish or just in general were more diverse, which is difficult, uh, especially on Purdue's campus. And um, so my friend group freshman year, again, was not diverse. And then I realized this and tried to go into extracurriculars, such as the uh, Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, um, and just try and... uh, seek out in classes people um like just more diverse friend groups um and also once i joined the society of hispanic professional engineers i realized something a little bit uh interesting that um since this is a podcast you guys can't see me but i'm like white passing and i grew up in the united states um and so my Spanish isn't a hundred percent, a hundred percent perfect. My, um, like I have an American accent when I speak Spanish, I'm still fluent, but, uh, it's noticeable that I grew up in the United States and, um, I don't have the lingo of, uh, a quote unquote, like young person, uh, who grew up in Latin America. So not having that made me a little bit self-conscious about trying to um, speak with other Hispanic engineers or Hispanic people at Purdue, uh, mainly because I don't know, it boiled down to, I don't know what language we should talk in. (laughs) And, um, because my English is significantly better than my Spanish, their Spanish is significantly better than their English, but like we can both speak both languages. And, uh, I, I felt self-conscious about what, language we should actually be talking and so that might have been uh actually no that was definitely a barrier in terms of me associating with hispanic people on campus um which it that's just how the the that's just how it played out uh luckily though uh when i joined the institute of industrial systems engineers at purdue uh they did do have a, a little bit more diversity than uh, Purdue's campus in general. Uh, so still some areas to work around or work with, but uh, they were there I met uh, a more diverse cast of uh, engineers that allowed me to uh, get a different perspective on uh, different problems, different concepts, and um, a lot of uh, different just ideologies in general. Yeah, no, I can definitely relate. Like, I'm Mexican, and I think we speak Spanish a couple times, but, like, your Spanish is so much better than mine. 
to like how you feel like I can kind of like very much relate to where like I could probably last like 10 minutes five minutes of conversation with like a fluent Spanish speaker before I just run out of words and like my vocabulary and like my conjunctions and like my all of that and like that's like I don't know I feel like a lot of people don't think about that when like looking at underrepresented minorities and it's like especially if we grow up in the United States you kind of have to conform to their language and their culture because you want to fit in like I spoke really great Spanish up until the third grade to where I moved my family moved to a more predominantly white community and so instead of speaking Spanish where you know before third grade grocery stores I went to people speak Spanish school I went to a lot of people spoke Spanish a lot of my family members lived around me, so I'd see them on a weekly basis, get more practice Spanish. I went to Walmart, speak English there. I went to school, speak English there. Didn't see my family as often, so I had to speak English more. And then you look back and you're like, well, I lost all my Spanish ability. So, yeah, for me, it was definitely awkward even now. And, like, it's, like, at least for me, it's scary because it's, like, are these people going to talk to me in Spanish? Like, you don't want to assume anything, but, like, if they're more comfortable in Spanish, like, speak Spanish. Everybody should be able to speak whatever language they want. But I kind of want to, I don't know, not, like, cause them to speak English when I'm there. So, yeah, I definitely relate to that. And that, I think, if I could change anything, like, of my life, it'd be, like, I could retain more Spanish. Because I think... Uh, That'd be awesome just to have that connection and not feel kind of an outsider in both groups of like white people and then Spanish speaking people. Uh, not saying that either is inherently exclusive, but inherently if you don't fit in perfectly into the molds, you're going to feel a little. Yeah, there, there, there's a barrier there. Yeah. And like, uh, it seems like a my, relatively minute thing, but uh, the vocabulary of a young person um like the little nuances, the little jokes, the little words, uh, that matters in terms of like fluidity of a conversation. And if you're not in Latin America, uh, like a lot or consistently, you miss on those, you, you can't, uh, uh, replicate them. Uh, you might miss them if they're spoken to you. So, and then you miss some like nuances about conversation that, uh, might've come up in, if the conversation was in English, some jokes might have fallen a little bit flat. So that all plays into how uh, I that self-consciousness about speaking to uh, an international uh, Latin American student. So I wish I could relate and understand more to a lot of this. this is something that like as a person in the majority who only speaks one language, I, I guess my, my question and something that I would I would want to know more about is like what's something that you think is comparable like in white culture and like more of a majority groups that like is similar to this here that you guys share like is there anything that you've noticed that you feel like might be a similar connection or um, is this something that you feel like really you just have to experience this exact situation to truly understand it I mean obviously this doesn't do it justice but like if you go to like if you're visiting like a country you don't speak the language and right and you can only get like so much in a conversation is uh just kind of try to capture that feeling but in more intimate parts of your life so like 
I mean, you could probably order something in Germany if you Google, you know, great stuff in Google Translate. You could be like, can I get a, I don't know, a sausage in Germany? My roommate went to Germany, he said he'd love to eat sausages there. If you're trying to have a conversation with someone, you're trying to get to know more and build a relationship and you're missing those little parts, it's just like, it's harder. Um, it, it doesn't mean it's not possible. People learn languages, people practice languages, or people, you know, overcome that. But it's just like a, a little thing you always have to think about when stepping into those situations of like, do I speak Spanish? Do I speak English? Is my Spanish good enough? Is my English good enough? Or, you know, this obviously applies to the, anybody who speaks other languages than English in America. I guess one uh, analogy I could think of would be uh, it wouldn't uh, it doesn't touch exactly on the uh, language uh, dis- like discrepancy between uh, you and the person you're talking to, but more so the nuances of conversation. So if you take somebody who grew up in Los Angeles and pair them with somebody who grew up in uh, Louisiana, like there's just some things that are going to be lost from uh, that the person from California wants to communicate uh, that a person from Louisiana might not pick up on uh, and vice versa, simply because they grew up in different areas that have completely different accents, completely different jokes completely different like minute vocabulary that that's just how they interact on the, a day-to-day basis and you can't hit exactly those notes i i was gonna say to quickly add on don't wanna we can we can switch topics after this but i think a part of it too is like the expectation you know like the expectation of like oh this person's like hispanic from La- like i don't know latinx whatever terms they're using but like Oh, this person, like, I should, like, I can talk to them in Spanish. And then it's like, oh, not really. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, the, uh, the other side, it's like, oh, this person should be able to speak English. And if they don't speak English perfectly, it's like, oh, I can't really talk to them, really. So I think expectation, too, uh, has to do a part with it. Okay, yeah, definitely definitely interesting to hear you guys' perspective. I feel like I learned, learned something new there. So um, thanks for sharing that. Um, one of the things I want to talk about, Leo, is I, I know, um, kind of before COVID and everything happened, you had the opportunity to do, um, some study abroad stuff. Um, so I want to know just kind of like what that experience was like for you. And if you could just share, um, maybe kind of on the same topic of diversity and language barriers and things like that, if you want to kind of just share what that experience of being in a foreign country for an extended period of time was like for you and, and kind of your learning experiences through all of that. Right. Yeah. So I uh, was fortunate enough to study abroad um, with a program, an engineering program at Purdue. Uh, I was supposed to be there from January of 2020 all the way through August as part of a uh, working for four semesters or four months and then studying for four months in Germany. Um, And unfortunately, I was forced to leave uh, in around March. couple days ago a year ago <laughs> uh fortunate anniversary and uh but i was able to uh work in germany in a manu- in a factory uh in a small town in germany which is completely different from any other other environment that i've been in the po- total population of the town that i worked in was under a thousand 
I don't think I've been in a town in the United States with a population under a thousand. So yeah, wow, that's really small. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had to take if I wanted to take public transportation to get to my factory, I had to take two trains and a bus for a twenty-minute drive. Wow. <laughs> so luckily, um, uh, I was able to uh, befriend a coworker uh, who picked me up, which uh, was saved a lot of time and money. Um, and that was a, an especially, uh, helpful, uh, circumstance because I was able to communicate with him about just current topics, current events. Um, I would ask him specific questions about German, uh, as a side note, part of this pro- engineering program, you were forced to take four semesters of the language of the country that you were going to work and study in. So I had a baseline idea of, uh, how to have a conversation in German, but, there were some nitpicky grammar things that I just uh, picked his brain about, uh, like how do you choose between this word and that word, or uh, what is what is the connotation of this word, what is the connotation of that word, and he was uh, very very helpful in me trying to understand a little bit more German, and also just uh, German culture. Uh, we one of the biggest things that we laughed about was the discrepancy in healthcare, which is a well known discrepancy um between the united states and europe uh we that was also around the time of the democratic uh uh primaries and so i we spoke a little bit at length about um we spoke at length about the different candidates exactly what they meant uh to say exactly what the perception of a certain candidate was uh, in a foreign country, which is definitely interesting because uh, nobody in Germany knows who Pete Buttigieg is. Like, they have no interest in knowing him either. Hmm. Uh, But everybody in Germany knows Donald Trump, definitely. Uh, And especially back then, they... uh, he had a run-in with like uh, Angela Merkel, and uh, there that little confrontation was talked about at length uh, on German radio stations. Um, we talked about the rising uh, sense of nationalism in Germany, uh, which I was not aware of, um, much to the extent of the rise in nationalism in, uh, I believe, France and Poland, and even, uh, of course, in the United States. So that was a uh, good, just awakening moment for me in terms of how uh, just different cultures are experiencing much of the same uh, battles that are happening in the United States. Um, In terms of the actual factory and the work life there, it was very individualistic. Uh, There weren't, there was one meeting that I attended a week, which is ridiculous (laughs) ridiculous <laughs> when um when i had my last internship i had at least two to three meetings a day we had while in germany again one team meeting in uh, on monday morning and that was it um also i don't know if it was specific to the factory that i was working in at the time uh but there wasn't anybody under 40 years old and the, I would say the median age was over 55 years old. 
the uh, youngest. Do you is that is that like a cultural thing there that you think causes that or? It's uh, I think it might be the emphasis on uh, higher education in Germany and in the uh, in the European Union uh, because it's very very common to have a master's degree. Uh, so once you continue, uh, once you finish your, uh, bachelor's degree, it's almost expected to get a master's degree and in a form of like a work study program. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. Like there was somebody who joined, uh, after me as part of a work study program and he was, he was in fact on the younger side, but still the emphasis on getting a really good baseline education probably led to an increased age um in the workforce but then again this is also just one factory in a small town in southwestern germany so i wouldn't be uh wouldn't be smart to extrapolate that to all of germany did you notice any like general tendencies of people being happier or less happier in their work in germany versus here honestly with the way that with how individualistic uh the German work culture is not really um, like you uh, just sat down, looked at your computer, worked on a problem. If somebody had a question for you, they would come up to you. And that was that. Um, and there would be some off the cuff, like meetings, conversations, um, obviously all in German. So I couldn't really participate that much in them. <laughs> Uh, my ears perked up whenever I heard a word that I understood or a sentence, but, uh, there wasn't a lot of like water cooler conversations. It was just, uh, sit down, do your work and, uh, then go home at the end of the day. That's also an interesting thing about, um, Germany specifically is the fact that the, uh, uh, workers union is so strong that you like are forced to work a maximum uh or not forced to work a maximum number of hours but you are heavily encouraged to um work a set number of hours if you exceed that then you have to take like vacation days to to uh build up because essentially you build up credit for example i um uh was supposed to work 40 hours a week every week However, if I came in early and left late Monday through Thursday, um, I would get to the 40 hour mark early. So then I would take Friday's after Friday afternoons off. No questions asked. And that was great because um, I would then hop on a train and go to any country within like, I could visit four countries in 30 minutes or some uh, which is great. And so it's. It's an interest. It's not an easy way to gauge exactly how happy people are working there because of uh, just how focused they are with their uh, actual work. But once they get off, they get off. Don't message them. Don't text them. That they work at work and they live at home. Yeah, that's definitely a little different than what we've got over here, um, especially for me. Um, <laughs> so sounds you know I. What kind of hours do you work, Owen? I average about 50 hours a week at work right now, which honestly isn't awful. Um, but, I mean, right now I have, in the last 24 hours so since yesterday about lunchtime, I have like eight unread emails from work. 
no one's texted me this weekend, which is good, but um, it's definitely not uh, 40 and leave early. Um, I definitely feel like I'm lucky enough that my boss is like understanding of like, you know, take care of yourself, have good mental health, don't over, don't outdo yourself. And my director is the same way. Um, but at the same time, it's like when, when it's time to grind, like there's a kind of unwritten expectation that you put in as much as you can to get, get stuff done. Um, and part of that is the nature of the company I work for. And part of that's also just the American, like got to work hard and earn what you need and things. So, um, it's definitely a, a unique kind of practice that I think the Germans have kind of figured out of mandating work-life balance almost. It's, it's something that is definitely nice and probably needed. I, I think I saw an article over the weekend that like, uh, some investment bankers from Goldman Sachs were requesting a maximum of 80 hours a week. And like, as someone that works 50, 80 blew my mind. And I was like, that's insane. But the fact that they're like requesting that as a portion of their contracts that they can't be worked more than 80 hours a week, like is insane to me. But I don't know. It's unhealthy at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about, I think about what I do and there's definitely days where I'm like, okay, I just worked a 10 hour day. I come home and I don't feel like there's a ton of time left at the end of the day to do anything. I can't imagine even being in a situation where you're working that much and have like literally no free time. Like I feel like I have some free time in the evenings. I can go climb, I can go work out, go do whatever I want. Um, and then have the weekend to, you know, take trips and do fun things But 80 hours a week, man, I would just be exhausted. Like I definitely don't understand that at all. So yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting that, um, my, the factory had an office for uh, a union representative there. And that is like, when I saw that, uh, I was definitely surprised because that just goes to show how strong the influence of the labor unions in Germany is. No, definitely. Um, I think kind of on the topic, uh, a question that I'm curious to know of like, and maybe this is the, maybe this example that we're talking about here is the answer, but if there's like one thing that you could bring back, like one practice or tradition, um, it doesn't even necessarily have to be like the work related stuff, but that you could bring back from Europe to the United States, like what would it be? It's a difficult one. Um, I guess people are just generally more willing to help each other out in Europe. I feel like just, um, while Germany has a very individual individualistic work culture, there's still some element of collectivism in terms of the general public. So, um, at least some influence of that, um, or some culture change towards a little bit more of collectivism would be, I feel beneficial in the United States. Going off of kind of the differences in how companies are run in Europe, your experience, and obviously now they're running in America, what is the worst part about searching for a job in the United States? That's a very broad question. You can take it. How do you like it? <laughs> so I was, again, with this engineering program that allowed me to study abroad, uh, I was fortunate enough to not have to worry too much about uh, searching for a position in Germany because uh, the engineering program uh, gave me ample opportunity to uh, have an internship with a domestic company in the U.S. And these companies 
all had opportunities abroad. So um, I was able to uh, just directly communicate with the uh, uh, HR in HR representative in the United States, and they communicated with the HR representative in Germany. So they set that all up for me, which uh, was really, really great. Uh, I didn't have to stress about it at all that much. Uh, just like a simple conversation in the United States, and then they facilitated the rest of it. So I can't really say too much about the German aspect of it. There were still some elements that were the same in Germany as there are in the United States in terms of not getting back to people at all. Like, I remember I applied to a consulting firm in Berlin in around, I don't know, September, October, because things hadn't exactly been ironed out with uh, the company I ended up working for. So I was just throwing out applications and they didn't get back to me until July. So... <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Um, and that happens in the United States all the time. Yeah, like yeah, I've, yeah. I've spent three summers uh, shooting out applications uh, here and there, just hoping for the best. And that not not getting a response is definitely the worst part of any application process. If you don't tell if you don't tell me anything, that's worse than a rejection. Yeah, no, it's definitely definitely tough. I always have loved the uh the sankey diagrams that people do where it like maps like okay i had like 300 total and then it like kind of waves into the different groupings of like okay first call automatic rejection no response and i always see a ton of those where like the biggest category is like no response and it's like sometimes you wait multiple months and don't hear anything and like it's got to be super stressful as like a student trying to figure out what you want to do with your life and whether it's you know internships or full-time just trying to figure something out and like you're just sitting here in this limbo of nothing and just constantly waiting to hear back I, yeah it's it's not fun can't imagine the the stress of dealing with that glad i'm glad i've got that over and done with for me at least for at least for a little while <laughs> um so kind of on the notes of, of job search and things of the like, and, and in your introduction, you talked a little bit about kind of like wanting to work in healthcare and in these renewable energy fields. Um, is it, are you more focused on kind of like this kind of internal goal of like doing right by the world and helping other people? Or are you kind of like motivated to work for like companies who have similar missions or like, do you want to work for just like big name brands? Like what is, what is that like kind of like life purpose for you look like in terms of your career and the companies that you work for and kind of what you do every day in a job? So my main purpose I've found would have to be do everything I can to help others. Um, so being in a position of an industrial engineer, I found that the way that I can most directly apply that um uh, purpose would be in renewable energy or healthcare, um, because uh, I can't be a doctor at this point. Um, also, blood is icky, um, <laughs> and <laughs> the um, so I can't directly help people out um, in that aspect. But with uh, trying to advance. Um, renewable energy and have renewable energy be more readily available to the general public, I feel like has the potential to uh, make the lives better of a lot of people. So 
and if I work in healthcare, then if I optimize um, a hospital or if I optimize the production of a medical device, then uh, the hospital might be more efficient and the cost of the medical device might be lower. Um, so those two aspects, they, they might be a little bit, uh, what's the word? Contradictory? Not, not contradictory, like uh, idealistic or um, because there's a lot of nuances with, uh, uh, with that field. Like if I would go into like each company, each large company has its own scandal of uh, like exploiting workers or producing uh, false advertising or uh, maybe encouraging a coup in Bolivia. Uh, <laughs> and, a little specific there. <laughs> and uh, so you just have to uh, take take it as it comes with... Um, like no no company's perfect i recognize that so um if i at least go in with the mindset of trying to do something apply my degree to help others then uh i'll my purpose would be fulfilled kind of kind of going off of that do you think that companies are inherently good or bad like do you think if a company is bad is it the company's fault that it's bad or is it just the nature of capitalism and american like society that makes it bad so i think that currently uh the way that the u.s economy is structured uh large corporations are just trying to get bigger no matter what so if they can cut costs, they will to make a larger profit. So there are companies out there who maybe do do it less or so, or um, but I feel like large companies at least generally are trying to find any edge, no matter what, to uh, to make more make more money. So say a company like ExxonMobil, they, uh, what they're inherently doing is damaging to the environment, like point blank. So I personally disagree with exactly their, with their current like company structure. So I wouldn't want to put any money, any effort, any, um, uh, resources into supporting that. Uh, but say that everything they treat their workers, uh, uh, like stupendously uh, so in that aspect they would be a quote-unquote good company working towards a bad goal so that I would assume that that does happen uh, but currently I feel like even uh, the best companies uh, like in some way take advantage of uh, the lower class and try and m- do so as much as they physically or legislatively can. Yeah, I think that that definitely probably happens a lot. And one of the things I can kind of think of, um, and just maybe a, a question I'm curious your thoughts on, but do you think that like companies ever change like for the good? 
because they want to do better or do you generally think that they're going to chase their profits right like i think a, an example here is like volkswagen just last week said hey we're gonna completely stop uh or no it was audi sorry a, a subset of volkswagen said that they're going to completely stop their research into the combustion engine like they're no longer going to pursue that um do you think that's audi and and inherently volkswagen saying well we think that this is right for the world and so we're going to like focus all of our efforts on alternative energy or do you think that that's them just seeing a future of like well everyone else cares about the climate and so we need to get ahead of the curve and to kind of save our butts and focus on doing something because of a financial reason i think currently there's elements of both but uh that just depends on how um how much you imagine the like where the hearts are at of uh the execs at audi and volkswagen uh because like you can you would like to think that they did this out of like the betterment of the environment but you can't be 100 percent sure for example uh amazon got ahead of the curve and raised the minimum wage of all of their workers to 15 dollars an hour and now are a main uh proponent of raising the minimum wage but they only did so because uh they were forced to by or like heavily heavily encouraged to by bernie sanders so um that push towards uh fifteen dollars is inherently flawed because their intentions didn't uh originate out of the good of their heart the uh doing so came uh out of being pressured into doing so so even though that's for the betterment of the people they only did so because uh they were told to do so and with so i guess i'm a little bit more sympathetic towards like renewable energy and i guess with how far out they made this decision i would lean a little bit more towards uh like the they had the environment in uh, in their heart to uh, make this change because if they had done so uh, I don't know like two years ish before they actually made the change then that might seem a little bit uh, disingenuous but doing so so far out I feel like is a good look for them I kind of see it like if they were going to do it out of the goodness of their heart, they would have done it earlier. See, so that was, a, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like making the, this announcement year, years upon years before they actually do so, like there, there's a lot, there's a time limit of when it appears disingenuous and when they, it appears to be out of the kindness of their heart. So I think that the, the market for electric cars they see is growing. I think they see that people are shifting to more renewable energy or more green technologies. And so that's like, I think that's their sole purpose. I think it's not like, okay, we care about the environment. No, I think it's just what Tesla and other companies are doing for renewable, like, I mean, electric cars is so good that they're like, hey, if we jump in now, we'll be one of the first. Yeah, no, and that's definitely 
plays into their decision to do so and being so like hard with uh the uh or like stopping production of uh combustion engine cars um that it plays into uh that decision so so are they stop Owen, do you know if they're stopping production of combustion cars or just stopping research um, so they have a couple years for the transition, but I think the general idea was like they're no longer going to be developing any new engines, I think, after 2025. So like they've stopped. So they could still use old engines. Yeah, but they, they've like stopped their development, right? So like in, typically in like the automotive world, like you work in cycles of like five to seven years ahead. So like you, you if you drive like a 2015 car, the reason that the like center console and infotainment system is like absolute junk is because it was designed in like 2007, 2008, right? So when they're coming out and saying that they're cutting like research, that just means like they're no longer going to be designing new products for the combustion engine. So like to me, that also means that like they're done creating new products and like obviously there will still be some supply left of all of the products over the next few years of combustion engines. But to me, it sounds like they're like changing completely to electric. So I mean, who knows? Obviously, we'll ha- we'll see how that's played out. Um, but I mean, it seems to be. Pretty May- I mean, maybe there's just no future in combustion anymore. I mean, how many? I mean, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, but like, how much have combustion engines improved over like the last ten years? I mean, significantly. I bet you it's marginal. I significantly, man. I think you'd be surprised. In terms of what? What do, what do we say? I mean, fuel efficiency, power. I mean, think about how the electronics of the car engine have changed just in the last 10 years. I mean, you used to pick up, hop in a Ford F-150 in the early 2000s, and you're getting 12 miles a gallon. F-150 nowadays, low 20s, just because they're able to optimize gas usage and valve timing and injectors and, uh, injectors and things like that. Like, tons of improvements to the combustion engine. Okay, Leo, last question for you here. Um, obviously you're pretty passionate about kind of your goal and your purpose, um, and kind of this idea of helping people out, whether it's through healthcare or alternative energy, both of those are kind of, uh, good, good fields to work in. Um, do you think it's possible for people to be successful in those fields, but not be as passionate about like why they do what they do? A hundred percent. There's definitely people who see, uh, to your point, Sam, of um, renewable energy being uh, an essential or an integral part of the future and uh, get into that for the sole purpose of being at the forefront of that uh, whole area and uh, want to be the innovators who make the most amount of money. So if they see that and predict that uh, renewable energy is going to make them a lot of money, then I wholeheartedly believe that there's people who are in uh, these fields who do so solely because of the money. That's no doubt in my mind. Do you think those people are in the majority or in the minority? I'd say those are in the those who are solely in in it for the money are in the minority, but there's also a lot of people who uh do so for the clout as well that's that's also a big factor they don't really care about uh the environment too much they're uh like obviously that's a factor but um there's also uh 
they don't entirely do so because they uh, it's the greatest or it's what they view as the best way to make the most money they're just there because working at us uh, some companies get gets them a lot of clout no that's fair all right well i think that's all the questions we had for our main segment sam you want to transition us into our our topic segment yeah so this next segment leo is three questions that we will ask about three or four of our next guests and just see how they view these questions and how they answer them. So the first question is, what do you think people remember the most about you? I'd have to say my willingness to um, just like be there for them, hopefully, um, because I really do not like, I don't want in under any circumstance let somebody down. So if somebody counts on me, uh, I try to do my best not to disappoint them, whether that be a friend, um, a project uh, member, a uh, a colleague, or even my parents. Like uh, having somebody be disappointed in in me, it like weighs heavily on me. So uh, hopefully people think about uh just my willingness to to try and uh do my best to to make them feel better okay yeah definitely um next question here and and maybe there's some overlap with the last question but what do you see as your best character trait yeah i definitely see some overlap between the last um question i'd say my best character trait would be uh, <laughs> I guess it's kind of ironic, but uh, I do honestly uh, think of myself as like a humble person and somebody who can try, who actively puts myself in other people's shoes to understand their perspective. So I may be stubborn at points, but I at least try to understand the perspective and how they reached a certain point of view. Um, before I make some sort of decision or some sort of some sort of conversation talking point, which uh, has definitely uh, like come into play last couple of years in terms of uh, like the state of U.S. politics. Awesome. And the last question is: If you could change one thing about your character, what would that be? If I could change anything about my character, I'm very indecisive. I'm, I could tell. <laughs> the uh, this is a small, minute example, but over winter break, um, I went and got new pairs of glasses. I laid out twenty four examples, and had to call three different people to try and choose uh, a pair of glasses that looks marginally different from my last pair. So, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I am I. I being indecisive is part of my character, but, um, so that might be something that I, I would like to work on a little bit more. Awesome. Well, thank you for deciding to be on this podcast. <laughs> so now we can jump into our usually viewer submitted Q and a, but we have something special for you. Oh, so me and Leo were talking the other day or week or whatever about trivia. And Leo said, Sam, if you ever need anybody for baseball trivia, 
Oh, Call me. no. So today we have three <laughs> trivia questions for Leo. Uh, if you get them all, I'll be impressed. There's no reward, but I'll be <laughs> impressed. Uh, so, Owen, do you want to start off the first one? Yes. All right, Leo. Name the first player born in the 1990s to appear in a major league game. To make it easier, he tied a record, which was held by many, belting a homer in his first at-bat and drove in a first-game record six runs. Hint, with this start, he'll always be a star. Uh, first player born in the 1990s? To appear in a major league game, yep. Just cue up the... Uh, What's the music? Jeopardy music. <laughs> you viewers at home can get your pen and paper out and try to play along. So it would have to be around 2010. Um, Bryce Harper doesn't... Uh, did he debut around 2010? He debuted in 2011. <sighs> With the start... He'll always be a star. That was the hint. Always be a star. Just so everyone knows, I would not have the answer to this. Oh, no, me neither. I'm pretty sure these are really difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who debuted in around 2010? Okay, we're going to give you like 10 more seconds. Alright, uh, I'll go... I think you should take the hint more literally. Oh, Jesus. In terms of... With this start, you'll always be a star. Couldn't tell you. Okay, right, you want to tell an- me the answer? Yeah, the answer is the Cubs shortstop, Starlin Castro. Ah! Oh. <laughs> I would have gotten yeah, no, he he has, yeah, yeah, that would definitely be it. Okay, here's here's the next question, and this should be an easy one. Like father, like son, name the only father-son combination to back-to-back homers in a major league game. Kind of great for you, senior and junior. Wow, that was good. That was good. <laughs> he didn't even finish getting the question out there. Um, <laughs> all right, all right, last one here for you. In 2010, Royal Holiday became the second pitcher to toss a no-hitter in the postseason. Name the other hurler to toss a postseason no-hitter. Don Larson. What okay. Year? Wow. Ni- 1956? You got it. <laughs> wow. I am so impressed. I am so impressed, man. Okay. All right. Nice work, yeah, I didn't Leo. I was gonna get that one. That's good. <laughs> no, you got. I would not have gotten any of those. I don't obviously don't watch nearly as much baseball as you, but wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> two for three. We'll give you. We'll give you two thirds of the clout you would have gotten. So, <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, I think on that note, that's uh, really all we have. So, thank you, Leo, for taking some time today to join us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Of course, I'll be happy to come back for the same amount of money. yeah yeah we'll we'll make we might even give you a little bit of a raise next time we really we really appreciate all you're doing here and hopefully uh your fame will drive our viewer account way up so thank you for that hopefully fingers crossed thanks everyone for listening to the episode today um we hope you enjoyed 
My name is Owen. My name is Sam. And I'm the guest star, Leo. And this is Table Talks.